Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith and we're recording this before our live stream on Thursday night, but you'll be hearing it afterwards. So I hope you enjoyed whatever is about to happen. Remember, if you'd like to get access to our online events and an early version of the show without ads, then please do back us on Patreon. You'll get lots of other extras too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Today, new information about the government's shambolic response to the coronavirus continues to emerge. Boris Johnson's performance now has the joint lowest approval rating in the world, according to new international research by YouGov. With a net score of minus 15, we are tied with Mexico and even worse than the USA. And this week, Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London said that introducing lockdown a week earlier would have halved the number of deaths in Britain. He said, given what we knew about the virus then, lockdown was warranted. Certainly, had we introduced them earlier, we'd have seen far fewer deaths. To talk about this, I'm joined by a medic who was the former chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee and former Conservative TIG and Liberal Democrat MP for Totnes, Dr. Sarah Wollaston. Hello, Sarah. How's post- Hi. Hi. How's, how's post-Parliament life treating you? <laughs> very nice. I feel 10 years younger, but very keen to get back to the front line. So I'm hoping to be able to do that within the next couple of weeks. Oh, wonderful. Um, well, we're, we're thrilled to have you here. Um, and I mean, look, there's no, there's no beating about the bush with this thing. Professor Ferguson told the Commons Committee that locking down a week earlier would have saved, I think, some, I think he said 25,000 lives, um, over half of our current uh, death total. Is it, is it possible to know that for certain? I think it's very difficult to be certain about the exact numbers. But if we look at the excess deaths over and above, we would expect for over the five-year rolling average, um, we're looking at around 64,000 excess deaths. And that's quite an extraordinary figure. Who would have thought at the start of this that the United Kingdom would end up in the position where we are the worst in Europe? And I think that we do need to take stock of why that's happened and also what lessons we need to learn in advance of there being a second wave. Uh, because it's no good having a public inquiry looking at this years down the line. I think we need to be learning those lessons now. And particularly because there's no sign that the government are prepared to accept that anything could have been done differently, which I think is very worrying. And Sarah, it wasn't just uh, Professor Ferguson who was cautioning this. Um, A paper by Professor Stephen Riley of Imperial College London came out as early as March the 9th, uh, calling for a lockdown. That was a full fortnight before Boris Johnson's announcement. Was that paper in line with public opinion at the time, or, or was it a real outlier and therefore really easy to dismiss? Well, I think it's always easy to be um, wise after the event. And I'm not in a position to know at this stage the entire balance of the information that the government were given at the time. But what concerns me is that, that they look at this data and they're not prepared to accept that anything could have been done differently. And we look at the experience of, say, Germany, Um, And you can see it's not just about time into lockdown. It's also about the preparedness for the pandemic in the first place and the position of us dropping testing 
and tracing mm. at such an early stage. And we now know that was because simply we had dismantled the systems that could do that. Um, and I think that if we look at what went wrong, the problem is that we're seeing this constant stream of misleading data. And I was looking at the letter from Sir David Nor Norgrove um, from the UK Statistics Authority, and it was absolutely excoriating about how mm. the data has been rendered incomprehensible and meaningless. So it doesn't either inform the public, but more importantly, it doesn't allow us to properly properly say whether we're being effective in the type of testing we're deploying and where it's being deployed. So it's the worst of all worlds. And so what we need to do is not just look at the date we went into lockdown, but look at what's happening right here and now about testing and tracing the systems we have in place, be that the, 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 the app that's being trialled in the Isle of Wight, or why directors of public health in their local systems weren't involved um, in, in having a local, locally based test and trace um, and uh, an isolate system. So there are lots of things that we're still making mistakes about and still not learning from international experience. And, and I think that's what we should be mostly focused on is not not what errors and what could have been different differently in the past but what we're doing wrong right now right now right now and and i i don't mean to labor the point about hindsight and uh, the soothsayers <laughs> as as you know they can now uh, be seen as being um but there were, of course, these medical experts and scientists at the time saying lockdown sooner. There were people in Italy telling us, please lockdown sooner. We wish we had. Don't, don't be like us. But the, over the last couple of days, some videos have resurfaced from the beginning of March um, where former Tory leadership candidate Rory Stewart uh, was calling for a lockdown. But really interestingly, uh, alongside um, his video talking about the need to do that, um, uh, it has been the, the video footage of Jenny Harries refuting him at the time and saying that they were following the science. And that sort of brings me to the point that, that you know, that we keep coming back to in all of this. It, was the science wrong or was the government's interpretation of it that was wrong? And I, I appreciate that you don't know because you don't know necessarily what they received in full, but how do we, how do we combat this um, uh, sort of growing narrative that, that, the science was wrong and, and we were only acting on, on, you know, on the basis of that. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think what, what we're seeing is the government trying to blame it all on the scientists now. But of course, the scientists present them with a range of options and scenarios, but ultimately it's ministers that decide. And so it was an active decision not to go into lockdown. But even if you take that full lockdown out, there were all sorts of things that even at the time, a lot of people were were really surprised that, that were going ahead, these mass events like Cheltenham, um, the, the game at Liverpool, um, where it was an extraordinary mass, mass potential spreading events. Um, and also we had the Prime Minister very sort of out there loud and proud, shaking hands with people. And so, you know, basic 
kind of things that even short of full lockdown um, were, were were contributing to this. And and of course the other thing that has come out is the the fact that the the spread the widespread in you know seeding of this virus from cases coming in from northern Italy, uh, and we're only just now introducing quarantine. I mean that's a clear case of bolting the stable door after the horse has bolted. You know when um, when when we we, we were probably getting a lot of cases coming in from outside that although it, people arriving from Wuhan and China were being uh, being checked you know, we already knew there were cases spreading in northern Italy and nothing was being done then so I think there there are really serious questions to be asked um, and deserve answers but I'm afraid we're seeing time and again the government's response being everything was done according to the science no there's nothing we would have done differently um and i think that's very worrying because if you're not prepared to accept that anything could have been done differently how are you going to learn lessons in future and amid all of this criticism johnson's standard response has you know been to really sort of kick this into the future as well you know oh, you cannot make international comparisons it's simply too early to judge ourselves oh well our, our our death rate might be bad compared to other people's now but theirs will catch up because it's too uh, early to say is that fair i mean do, do we have enough evidence at the moment to be drawing some of these valid comparisons well, I think what's interesting is the government are very happy to make international comparisons where they think they're favourable, but uh, not to do so uh, where they're not. And uh, I'm afraid that you can't, this it seems an odd approach to me, because we have to be able to learn from international experience. So we need to be looking at comparable nations that are handling this much better, um, particularly comparable nations like Germany, and be learning from what they got right um, not just be mm. saying it's too too early to make international comparisons. It's absolutely important to be doing that um, right now. I was uh, pretty shocked earlier to uh, read a story that came out of a recording of the Telegraph's podcast with oncologist Professor Carol Sikora, where he has made the claim that actually the British mortality figures are are way too high and that the real figures will be much lower because up to, and I think this is his words, up to half of COVID-19 victims would have died anyway. I mean, as a fellow medic, how do you respond to something like that? Well, I think it's, uh, I think it's very unfortunate because it gives the impression that those people don't matter or that, uh, that early deaths don't matter. They, they do matter. And, and of course, when we're looking at excess deaths, um, you're also looking at people who have died indirectly as a result of COVID-19 because of perhaps they've had to delay really important medical investigations for, for cancer. So there have been all sorts of indirect deaths as a result of COVID-2. My view is that we should be looking at excess deaths um, as the, the as the best guide to the true impact of, of this virus. And, uh, and certainly if you look at our excess deaths currently running around 64,000, that's 64,000 people over and above that you would expect on a rolling five-year average in, in the space of just under 12 weeks. I mean, that is a staggering number. 
Um, I'm just, you know, when mm. you try and let that sink in, is, is there anything else where if we had in that time frame 64,000 extra people die, I, I think there would be outrage, particularly if people could see that compared to comparable nations, how much worse we're doing. Um, and, of course, mm. on top of all this, we've got the impact of no-deal Brexit just around the corner. And we've had some very... I thought, I thought you'd never <laughs> mention it, Sarah. <laughs> and we've had some very stark warnings um, uh, from pharmaceutical companies um, that, that those, those stockpiles um, are going to be very difficult to replenish. And, uh, and we've got a government that's still indicating that it's prepared to take us over the cliff edge at the end of December. And at, the, you know, at that point we will be in the middle of winter pressures, which are always severe. It's you know, the, mm. the, the experience from past pandemics is they do tend to have second waves, that the R rate... And just past winters. Yeah. Don't does, NHS has a winter crisis almost every year, regardless of any pandemic or Brexit. Yes, and in addition to that, that, uh, that we, we have the fact that... If, that we know that this virus spreads more rapidly indoors. The R number tens is, is more likely to increase in the winter months when people are indoors. Um, and so we've got this possible sort of perfect storm brewing. And I think at the very least, it, it, the government should be looking very carefully and setting out here and now how they're going to address those issues of, of uh, medical equipment. Because it's not just medicines, it's medical equipment and the ease with which that can come into the country. Which are the medicines and equipment that you're most concerned about? Well, the, if you look, for example, at even things like the, the, uh, the, the dialysis tubing, there's no, no dialysis equipment produced in this country. It all has to be um, imported, and it's very bulky. And, and, we're, hearing, and we're hearing COVID, um, if you survive it, it, there's more and more evidence to suggest that it can leave you with uh, you know, kidney issues, as, as I understand Indeed. It. So we may become more reliant on dialysis machines, I would imagine. People tend to sometimes look at this debate entirely through the lens of medicines. And of course, there are some that, are, that can't be stockpiled at all. Obviously, the issue around um, uh, you know, medical isotopes, for example, that have a very short shelf life, that issue remains the same. Well, if you think of um, in, in many types of investigations um, that require medical isotopes, so all sorts of scans, for example, are very highly dependent on this uh, on products that simply cannot be stockpiled. So those issues haven't gone away. But on top of that, there are a number of medicines that can be stockpiled and were stockpiled, to be fair, but those have now been used up. And the warning from pharmaceutical companies very clearly this week has been it's going to be much more challenging for government to build up a stockpile again because those medicines are simply not in the same supply but that's uh, that's the documents that have been seen by the the bbc um but i think these should all be fully in the public domain and partly why um i think that you really do need to have a public inquiry and it's not about apportioning blame um it is about genuinely saying what do we need to be aware of that are the big problems coming up for the next few months 
and how are we going to make sure that they're being addressed in advance rather than waiting for a second wave to crash into us. And an inquiry sort of sounds like it, it might have to do the role that you would hope um, uh, would be provided by Parliament uh, in way of scrutiny. Anyway, um, you, as I mentioned, you're a former um, chair of the Health Select Committee. How do you rate the different committees scrutinising uh, government at the moment in terms of government response? Well, I think that that both the Health Committee and the Science and Technology Committee and committee that are just about to be set up in the Lords, I think they are all doing a good job. But the trouble with individual committees is that they can only call ministers from their own departments. And a lot of these issues are cross-cutting issues. And so what I personally would like to see is a, um, is a cross-party, but also of both Houses of Parliament, um, special committee set up with which can which can look at all of the relevant issues um a, a model i think that's quite interesting is the um is the committee that was set up a commission of both houses of parliament after the banking scandal and it was able to employ barristers to have professional counsel do questioning um, and take evidence where necessary on oath. It was able to compel witnesses to attend. Um, it heard evidence in public. It had several different expert work streams. And it was very much drawing on the expertise that exists in the House of Lords. And it was definitely cross-party. It wasn't partisan. Mm. It was it was trying to take a neutral um, uh, you know, objective view of what happened, but also having both houses of parliament meant that the recommendations could be followed through in the Lords as well. Because the trouble with producing reports is if they then just sit on the shelf for years and they don't result in constructive you know, action, uh, then they're mm. pretty useless. They can be, be very expensive and and you know and, and take years. And we don't have the luxury of time. We don't. We don't, and uh, and you know all the received wisdom is that this uh, second wave could hit us within a matter of months, and as you say, we need to be ahead of that. Um, so you joined twenty six other health experts in writing to the Guardian, uh, calling on the government to hold a public inquiry, um, and and you talked through the work of a, a previous commission uh, that that I suppose this this inquiry could um, uh, emulate. But how? I mean, it, it certainly feels to me like we need this public inquiry to happen before a second wave. But how do we get that into fruition? What, what are the major blocks to that inquiry happening? Because the average Joe surely sees this as a very, very common sense thing to, to be done. Well, of course, the, the, the major block is whether the government would allow it, um, because they may take the view, well, they wouldn't want something that could end up appearing to criticise them. And that's why I think that if it from the outset takes a view that it's it's not so much about taking a blaming approach um, it's genuinely uh, taking a constructive approach which is saying what do we do here and now I think that would be more likely to get the go-ahead from government and I, I think that they should see it in their interests to actually encourage and set something up that's process now at some point 
I do think there's going to be a case to look at more at the accountability side of this and say, you know, what was the ministerial decision making? You know, what on earth were they thinking in not dismissing Dominic Cummings because of the effect that had on the public's attitude to really important public health messaging? I mean, it totally undermined it. It was, it was like a, it, it was immediate the impact of that mm. on, on public health messaging and undermining that. Um, but that's for another day. So I think if, if the government think that this is going to be an inquiry that looks at um, apportioning blame, they're, they're unlikely to support it. If, however, that is put aside for another public inquiry another time, I, I think that's perfectly reasonable because in terms of a public health crisis, You've, in my view, the priority should be how are you going to get better yeah. decision making in future rather than apportioning blame for the past. Internal pressure from within the sort of political world um, is is right and good, and from the scientific community. But for you know people that listen to this podcast, for people who are uh, you know maybe describe themselves as a, as a bit of a grassroots activist. Or just those of us that are really concerned and worried about the direction of travel in relation to the virus and, you know, uh, uh, letting go of lockdown and relaxing the rules ahead of this potential second wave that could come back to us. What, what mechanisms can we use to influence government strategy on COVID? What, what can we do to help this public inquiry come about? Well, I think there's been some incredible work that's been going on with um, with people across the country going to see their, well, not see them in person, but to see them virtually or to um, be writing and lobbying their MPs to say, you know, this is what really worries us. So I, I, I think that I know as a former MP that it does make a difference when people get in touch with you. And, you know, there has been an extraordinary outpouring of, uh, of people Going, going to get in touch with their MP. So yes, definitely do that. I hope that people will feel that they'd like to sign up to the March for Change petition, which is calling for a public inquiry. Um, and as I say, just keeping up that pressure and trying to keep it constructive about this is about saving lives in the future. Mm. And um you know, maybe perhaps more with your medic hat on. I'd just love to ask you about um, how little we know about this virus. And, of, you know, the Prime Minister will keep telling us that we don't know enough about it and uses that to defend, you know, potential government mishandling. But we are learning little bits. And uh, Good Morning Britain's Kate Garraway has spoken about her own husband, uh, Derek Draper's absolutely heartbreaking struggle with the after effects of COVID. Um, and, and, you know, that you can survive it, but it doesn't mean you're going to return to a full bill of health. Um, it, is the government doing enough to get to grips with the long-term impact of this disease, do you feel? Or is it sort of just, uh, you know, going day to day and, and sort of week by week rather than looking ahead and thinking how are we going to help those that have come through this but aren't back to where they were? I think you're absolutely right. And, and it's not just those who need um, rehabilitation in terms of um, physical illness. It's the mental health impact of COVID nineteen, um, not just on uh, on those who've who've suffered from it themselves, but very many people have been bereaved as a result of this terrible illness. 
who have not been able to be with their loved ones at the time they died. And uh, you know, the, the impact of that, losing someone and not being able to be with them at that point in their lives, it is profound in terms of bereavement. And, uh, and also for those people who've been are going to be increasingly indirectly affected because of the impact of unemployment, um, I think, that, and staff, staff who've been there, you know, really difficult times um, for, for, for staff who are seeing, and care staff, where you have some homes where 24 of their residents have died, and they've been unsupported. I mean, the idea that there was a protective mm. ring thrown around care homes from the start is, is so manifestly untrue. Um, and and those who work in care homes will will be uh, are saying that loud and clear, and I think there will be quite an impact on on staff across the NHS and social care. So I think the, the ripples from coronavirus on uh, on our on the nation's mental health uh, are going to be profound. So thinking ahead, as you say, about how how we prepare for that is really important. And, uh, and finally, Sarah, um, what prescription would you write to make this government better? <laughs> I think one of the most annoying things is people that will never accept responsibility or that anything could have been done differently. Because if you're not prepared to learn lessons from the past, you, you're not going to be getting things right in the future. So my main prescription for them would be insight and uh, reflection and uh, and a willingness to accept that it's it's okay to have got things wrong what's not okay is to not be prepared to accept that you've got nothing wrong because otherwise you're never going to learn in the future brilliant well i'll, I'll call boots on uh, victoria street and tell them to <laughs> that was a get the prescription wasn't it yes <laughs> get, get the prescription ready <laughs> dr sarah Wollaston, thank you so much for joining us on the bunker um, hope to see you again soon. Yeah, lovely to catch up. Listeners, remember there's a new Daily Bunker every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday with the main panel show on Wednesday. Do subscribe, tell your friends and if you have a spare moment, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts because every little helps. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Hold up. 